Welcome to Reinventing Professionals, a podcast hosted by industry analyst Ari Kaplan, which shares ideas, guidance, and perspectives from market leaders shaping the next generation of legal and professional services. This is Ari Kaplan, and I'm privileged today to be speaking with Richard Suskind, the author of the newly released book, Online Courts and the Future of Justice, among many others, including The End of Lawyers and The Future of the Professions. Richard, how are you? Ari, the privilege is mine. I'm in good form. It's good to speak to you. Yeah. So tell us about your background and what inspired you to write Online Courts and the Future of Justice. Well, I'm hoping that some of your listeners are familiar with my past work, which is focused on the impact of technology, partly in lawyers, partly in the professions. There's been some work on artificial intelligence. But over the last, goodness me, almost 40 years now, I've been thinking about how it is that systems, machines, technologies can change the way that professionals and lawyers work. In this latest book, I've taken on the courts. It seems to me we have some significant difficulties and challenges facing our courts around the world. For example, it turns out that in Brazil, there is a backlog of 100 million cases in their court system. In India, 30 million cases. According to the OECD, only 46% of human beings live under the protection of the law, that is, of access to lawyers and the courts. And even, frankly, in jurisdictions like our own, where we value and believe our legal systems are at least advanced, the reality is, for example, for low-value civil claims, going to court costs too much, takes too long. The process is unintelligible to anyone other than lawyers. It's very combative. The process doesn't scale well. And just somehow it seems out of step in the digital society. So for a number of years now, I've been working the idea of online courts, and that's the focus of the book. That's my answer to the access to justice problem, and I explore it in the 350 pages that the book is made up of. How do your conclusions in online courts and the future of justice align with your prior well-received publications? The thinking, underpinning thinking, is very similar, that I have always drawn this distinction, perhaps in using different terminology, but fundamentally between automation and transformation. Automation being the application of technology to pre-existing, often inefficient processes, and somehow to remove the inefficiency, to turbocharge, to streamline and optimize the old ways of working. That's automation. That's what's dominated 40 years of thinking about lawyers' technology and court technology. The transformation angle is entirely different. This is the idea that you use technology not to automate previous ways of working, but to allow you to do things that previously weren't possible, indeed were possibly conceivable. And so you remember in a lot of the work I've been doing on lawyers, I've not been saying that these tools are tools to help lawyers work better. I've been saying that we have the ability through technology to allow non-lawyers online, for example, to gain access to legal guidance, legal insight, to documents and materials and so forth. So my message is always one of transformation through technology rather than straightforward automation. For whom is this book ultimately written? That's always an interesting question to ask, and I suppose a proper author would have thought that one through. But the way I write books, they tend to evolve. And uh, 
I feel I have something interesting that I want to discuss. And my question is, is court a service or a place? Do we really need physically to congregate together to resolve our differences? So that takes me to the idea, certainly, of judges reading the book, court administrators. But in the end, it's about the future of litigation. And even more remotely, in a way, it's for anyone on the planet, because I'm interested in the question of access to justice. But realistically, it's for those who are involved with law, those who practice law, those who work in the courts, and those who are interested in improving our court system. How can we as a profession overcome some of the resistance to these ideas, particularly a court that takes place online? So far, and I've got my fingers crossed at this point, I've had far greater support for this book than I've had for my previous books. Certainly, early reviews are positive. I think it's less of a direct challenge to many lawyers and to their well-being and their livelihood. This, for many lawyers, at least their perception, and it's true in the first instance, is a way of making self-represented litigants, people who otherwise would have no legal advice, it's a way of essentially empowering them to use the court system directly. So I think, in short, lawyers and litigators feel less threatened by this thesis. And I do make the point explicitly, I believe once these systems are in place for lower value disputes, I think we'll see that they can be used in many ways, even for larger scale litigation. So in summary, it's not just about access to justice, it's about the future of dispute resolution and it's the future of all litigators. And overall, I believe in a decade's time, huge numbers of cases won't be settled by physically congregating in courtrooms. They'll be settled by arguments and evidence submitted electronically online. So in the first instance, there's the idea of what I call online judging. And this is the idea that human judges, and we're not yet talking about AI, we're talking about human judges deciding cases not in a physical courtroom, not through oral hearings, but by the submission, as I said, of evidence and arguments by the parties online through some kind of online platform to the judge. The judge will decide the case, as we often say, on the papers alone, that's to say without any kind of oral argument, and will respond with a decision to these parties online. So it's an asynchronous hearing. There's no gathering together, either virtual or in any sense, real-time environment. It's a question of passing messages and arguments to the judge who responds in kind. Now, I'm entirely open to the argument that this is not suitable for all cases, but there are many low-value cases where it's simply disproportionate to take the day off work, to instruct lawyers, to take up a court's time to resolve relatively modest difficulties and differences. They may be relatively modest in objective terms, but for particular parties, they matter a lot. So what interests me is the idea that people can actually understand and then enforce their entitlements. So that's the idea of online judging, human judges deciding cases on the basis of evidence and arguments submitted online. The second aspect of online courts is in a way more controversial. And this is what I call extended courts. And the idea is this, I wanted to take a step back and say, in a digital society, is it enough that our courts simply provide judges who come to decisions and an environment in which they can do this? Rules, of procedure, court buildings, and so forth. Can we not do more, particularly when legal aid is available to so few people? Can we not do more to help court users? So I argue for the extended court that it becomes part of the court function to provide a range of online facilities, tools that can help parties understand their rights and obligations, that can help them understand the options available to them, that can help them 
formulate their arguments, gather and organize their evidence, and can often also even provide ways of the parties resolving disputes with one another, a kind of online alternative dispute resolution, not outside the court system, but as part of the court system. So this combination of judges making decisions online together with the extended court, it seems to me will greatly increase access to justice. And it's not a pipe dream. We're seeing it already in operation in Canada, some places in the United States, in the United Kingdom, in Australia, Singapore, and China. It's taking hold, and I believe it makes sense. My argument is it can deliver just outcomes at a more proportionate cost. And it seems to me this is an important challenge. And if we perhaps, and this is my big aim, if we can make these tools and the techniques available more widely across the world, then many places where the rule of law is not fully in place, we're providing tools and techniques that can precisely help accelerate the introduction of a structured, systematic way of applying the laws of the land. You mentioned a number of jurisdictions. Which courts do you think will change most dramatically first and which will take the most time to adapt? Well, there are different strategies that can be adopted. More ambitious systems want most of their courts to change. I generally advise that in the first instance, we should look at low-value civil claims, not criminal claims, low-value civil claims, as well as low-value family disputes and uh, tribunal, as we call them in the UK, but disputes with governments and public bodies. And the reason I say low value is because today, many cases and disputes and problems in these areas never actually reach the courtroom because people can't afford to instruct lawyers or it all looks too forbidding and so forth. So I think the way that we introduce, as so often happens with so-called disruptive technologies, the way we introduce this technology in the first instance should be to solve these or help resolve these problems, if you'll forgive me for putting this way, but it is at a low level. And once the technology is proven and established and people have confidence in its capabilities, we can perhaps be more ambitious on the range of cases that are used using these techniques. How quickly can we expect to see the types of changes that you describe? As I mentioned, there are already in various countries similar such systems in operation. Remember the old quotation by the science fiction writer William Gibson, though, the future has arrived, it's just not evenly distributed yet. And so to some extent, the future has arrived. When will this be a common feature? I think the defining decade is the 2020s. I think it's also the old Bill Gates point, isn't it? Less happens in two years than you think, and more happens in 10 years. So will online courts have transformed our justice systems within two years? Not at all. By 2030, I believe, for low-value disputes and for many others, it'll be the dominant way of resolving disputes. And the implications for access to justice are profound. What are the key messages that you hope readers will take from the book and then be able to apply directly to their work? One of them's a philosophical, almost psychological point that when I mention this innovation to many lawyers, and lawyers are wonderful at this, they can come up with all sorts of arguments in opposition and they'll talk about the lack of transparency and the inability to provide a fair trial and the likelihood of giving rise to a more litigious society and so forth. And I deal with all of these objections in my new book. But the philosophical psychological point, I suppose, that I'm putting forward is that our perspective should not be to compare this innovation or this set of changes with some kind of idealized perfect system but should be to improve upon the defective broken system that we have pretty much across our globe. And so the message is to look for 
improvement rather than perfection. The message is to try and remove, as I call it, manifest injustice rather than to create some kind of perfect justice system. It's so easy for lawyers to take pot shots at these recommendations, but we have to be open and honest and frank about the state in which most of our legal systems exist today. When I had the privilege of interviewing you back in 2011, you encouraged me to be bold in my career and in my work, and thank you so much for that generous advice. I remember it well and have really tried to embrace it. And how can listeners be bold in transforming their own careers and practices to prepare for what sounds like a much different future in the law? I think there's a very basic choice that all lawyers and litigators and to some extent judges face. And I can put it this way. You can either choose to compete with these emerging systems or be involved in building these emerging systems. By competing, you're saying, oh, there's so much that these machines can never do. Uh, these systems would give rise to all sorts of injustice. Here's the 43 difficulties with them. I think the current system is good enough, and I can see how we might be able to tweak it and tuck and trim and make it more efficient, but it's not going to change much. And in that sense, what you're doing is you're competing with the idea of online courts. Now, I think, I can't say that wrong, but it seems to me in a society and economy where we have this exponential growth in all aspects of technologies, and we see all sectors and markets just about being radically changed, I've never really understood why lawyers think that somehow the most information and document intensive industry of all, the law, should be exempt from these changes. So when I'm speaking to young lawyers in particular, I say, rather than seeking to criticize and compete with these emerging systems, why don't you get involved in building these systems? That's the great excitement. And it's excitement for lawyers, not just online courts, but for legal technology generally. We should be involved, the up and coming generation of lawyers should be involved in developing the systems that replace our old antiquated ways of working. That's the bold move. So the safe move, superficially, is to stick as you are, but it seems to me that the 20s is going to bring so much transformation that the more ambitious move is to say, I want to be part of the change. And I haven't even talked about a second generation of online courts where artificial intelligence will no doubt have a role. You may recall that I wrote my PhD in Oxford on AI and law in the 80s, so I've been waiting my whole life for AI to come into the law in a big way. I think it'll be some years before we see this technology deployed in earnest in the world of courts. But as again, I outline my book, I can see how this might come about. So the bold play, the exciting play, the ambitious play is to be part of the movement of individuals who recognize the defects in our current way of practicing law, our current way of administering justice, and our current way of delivering court service, and actually pioneering and bringing about the change that's beneficial to court users, in short, to increase access to justice. This is Ari Kaplan speaking with Richard Suskin, the author of the newly released book, Online Courts and the Future of Justice, among many others, including The End of Lawyers and The Future of the Professions. Richard, thank you so very much, not just for this interview, but for your encouragement over the years. I really appreciate it. It's a great pleasure. Thank you for listening to the Reinventing Professionals podcast. Visit ReinventingProfessionals.com or AriKaplanAdvisors.com to learn more.